0: i'm tamara thomas editor-in-chief of urbanhealthtoday.com part of the doc family of medical news sites and i want to thank you for tuning in to urban health weekly our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines it's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you so are you ready let's get started Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, and welcome to Urban Health Weekly, where we talk about medical news and health topics that matter to you. So I'm here with Jackie and Lou. How are you guys? Good. How are you guys doing?
2: Doing great.
0: Well, I'm glad all you are. And, um, you know, I had an interesting, remember I said that I was going to have a, an interview um, talking about cultural sensitivity? Well, yeah. so I had a talk with um, a doctor, Jessica Shepard. And we'll get into that later but first i want to talk about medicare Um, and that's going to be our medical news of the week so medicare advantage plans deny needed care that should be covered to tens of thousands of people a year federal investigators have found that's terrible federal investigators urge medical medicare officials to strengthen oversight of these private insurance plans which provide benefits to 28 million older Americans and call for increased enforcement against plans with a pattern of inappropriate denials. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of what happened. You know, the, this, this managed care thing where they, they're doing has been such, um, such hell. I remember my mom had managed care. Uh,
3: she- so wait, she had Medicare and then they it outsourced it to a managed care is correct. that how it works correct okay. and so what happened, like a private company was running so
0: a private company was getting those dollars and deciding what to do oh okay and so what was happening was they were denying everything now oh. yeah yeah, it's
2: Medicaid. yeah
0: so at one point it's all the same, yeah, pot, all the same yeah. really i mean you know so in any event what happened was they, they wouldn't pay for anything. She was an invalid. She, oh. couldn't, she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't dress herself. She couldn't walk. She couldn't, nothing. And I kept explaining to them, like, she needs eight hours of care. She needs eight mm-hmm. hours of home care. And they're like, well, we can only give her four hours. of home. Four hours, what is that supposed to do? Like, I have to work. I can't take care of her. Like, this plan is supposed to pay for. She needs full care. And they just wouldn't, 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 wouldn't. So I and you needed to... to work like full time to make yes. sure
3: she got her care.
0: Right. And so what happened was I finally had to go, I had to appeal because they just kept denying, denying, denying. Mm-hmm. And I had to appeal and I had to have them removed from, I don't know if they can do that anymore. They probably changed the law since then. This was like, mm-hmm. this was like 2009, but at the time I had to petition to have them removed as the managed care and just have it straight, straight
3: Medicaid. Really? So yeah. do you think that was, was that like a seasonal thing? Like now with health marketplace, you have like a, a time of year where you can change up. Do you think then they, did they have that then where you had to wait until like, let's say January before you could.
0: No, this was before all of that. This okay. was, they didn't have that back then, not to my mom's. I don't think they had that back then, no. Okay.
2: Well, so you see, and-, and You've is, got
0: aging parents. Did they have yeah, that back then?
2: No, it's, it's changed, but with, okay. with the advent of more and more people now selecting Medicaid and Medicare, mm-hmm. um, one of the first, and again, let me just backtrack a little bit. A lot of people, you know, there's a whole thing of Medicaid and Medicare for all, which in concept sounds good, but, there's the concept and then there's the reality. And the reality is pretty great because you're almost in a worse situation than you are starting out. And let me, let me explain what happens. When one goes on Medicaid, you, you would think like the government pays all of this and the government regulates it. The government does not have the capabilities, the people, any of that to sit down and manage your health, you know they just don't do it. The government you know the u s government's not going to say, "Yeah, you can get the colonoscopy, or no, you cannot get the colonoscopy, yes, you're entitled to a health aid, or no, you're not. What happens is when you they go farm it's not to
0: the insurance no companies. you
2: you pick one you're so sub- you pick one so you pick age well you pick fidelis you try to pick one that kind of fits.
0: i don't know if she actually picked i think one was just kind of a sign if you don't pick one yeah if you don't pick one
2: one is assigned to you. Mm-hmm. so and, and that's why an educated consumer is a good thing because you should start saying uh, okay you know, which which one of these companies, which one of these insurance companies, and I'm. Well, ask, I think I it's more them.
0: part of the lexicon now, but I think back then people just assumed
2: that. People just assumed they got it and, and they yeah. said, all right, pick one for me. You know, now, now it's like, well, wait a minute, this one doesn't
3: you have to be. You just kind of good... get the letter in the mail it's and then it's still like- hard to pick those out though, because yeah. it's still like, it's still confusing. And unless you're like really informed in that kind mm-hmm. of like language, it's yes. hard. Yes. Yeah. I had
2: to ask around for people that, that had experienced it, had aging parents, and all that. And the first one I picked was pretty bad. The second one has been okay. I'm not going to say it, it's great. Then these companies, they become like your insurance company. The payer is Medicaid, those are the people that pay the bills to, to, to them. But they become the administrators, they become the 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 provider the gatekeeper and And, you know these companies have a profit incentive
0: yes so So they try to keep as much money as they can and pay out as little as possible but the bill still stays the same as far as the government is concerned they're still paying that same amount it's just not trickling down to the patient level
3: right so
2: (laughs) and it becomes even more expensive because now not only are you paying for these costs but at the end of the day what you're doing is you're paying for this whole level of administration that you hope is doing, and by you, you the patient, and you the government, um, if both of yous use uh, are, <laughs> are. I know my my cousin Vinny.
3: New Yorkies, you guys. the
2: movie, my my, uh, my cousin, cousin Vinny. Okay. Um, so anyway, guys. yeah. You know, both both parties kind of rely on this to be a fair thing, but no, there's a profit incentive here. That's what I was trying to get at uh, through all of that. There is an incentive for these insurance companies that that kind of manage these cares to deny or or not deny or to provide the cheapest possible uh, alternative, and it's not always a good thing.
0: Well, I, have you guys have you? I've been following the story of this, this one um, individual that infuriated me, speaking of all of this. Um, It's the story of Shane Bear from North Carolina. He's a guy in a wheelchair. Have you heard this story? Uh, Vaguely. Okay. So he, um, he was in a car accident and he ended up in a wheelchair And um, then, you know, just when he got acclimated to that life, uh, he developed a condition called CIDP, which is chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, uh, which is a, it's a rare autoimmune disorder that basically shuts down the nerve endings um, and causes muscle weakness and eventual paralysis. So he's been taking this drug called Hisentra to to keep the disease at bay, because if he loses the use of his hands, his arms, he's basically going to to become an invalid because he's not going to be able to even operate his wheelchair. So what happened was um, Medicaid had denied uh, the coverage of the drug and he had appealed. And he had appealed five times and lost five times until the judge finally said, okay, you've got to cover this under your part D. So the Medicare took the L, then went back to the books and changed the rules and changed it, switched it from part D to part B, thereby not covering it again. Do you see wow, what I'm saying? Wow, wow, a big so switch. It was because of that, right, so at least because of that technical language where the judge said, look, you've got to cover this under part D, they used that as their little squiggle out of get out of jail free card mm-hmm. and switched it to part B. So then what he oh. did was he tried to play within the rules and he started taking another drug called Zembify. And again, he started and part of and part of the reason he needs this medication is because, you know, he doesn't want to have to go to the hospital all the time and get an infusion. It's something that he can take at home. Right. So he switched from the hisentra to Zembify. Like he's trying to work within, within yes. the system And they denied him again. Oh my God. God, and again, and again, and so finally he had to get the press on his side, the local press. So WBTV did an investigation to find out why Medicare has has denied his appeal and they quickly reversed. And now he's able to, Oh, they shame them. Yes. But if they were so easily shamed, why didn't they do it? Clearly they knew they were in the wrong, some
3: bean counter with
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so his plan sponsors from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services had just been denying his appeals over and over and over and over and over. And this poor man had just been through the ringer, not knowing what his future holds, because these drugs could potentially cost him tens of thousands of dollars a month that I don't know if he has or not. And even if he does have it, who wants to spend? If you have insurance, why do you need to spend $10,000 a month for medication that you clearly need. Right. So um,
3: kudos to his team. And this is, yeah, absolutely. And the use of his hands. Yeah. Then he, he, he need. you gotta have that. I remember um, uh, this veteran who had lost his hands and his feet in uh, the Gulf War. And he was talking about not being able to use your legs was really hard, but nothing was as hard as not being able to use your hands. And yes. so that would be denying this guy a preventable exactly. I mean that would be denying his, him his
0: humanity and his independence. Right, right. God. I mean, and he'd already lost so much, and then right. they wanted to, in some bean counters, want to deny him, you know, his humanity, which is just deplorable. And these are the same, this is the same government who likes to try to shame every private business known to mankind. And yet here they are allowing this kind of stuff to happen it's absolutely disgusting
3: not cracking down on this managed care like this no exactly exactly it's disgusting
2: yeah agreed agreed Uh, agreed I I know everybody's waiting for a more profound
3: (laughs) but but I
2: I think disgusting is the best way to, to call it and uh, let's all realize that, you know, the, the secondary medicine and, and stuff that they give you is usually not as effective. Uh, you know, you're, you're going on, Thursday, oh. you know, they, they're giving you, they're subjecting you to, you know, 20 year old technology or whatever, because these drugs were, they, they're generics now, but they're, you know, they're at least 13 years old uh, because that's how long, you know, your average drug takes to become a generic. So they they are giving you a lot of stuff that you're being basically treated with technology that was 20 to 30 years old. And if you think things don't move forward, just think of using a cell phone. If they even existed from 20, 30 years ago, we just found one. I just found one the other day. And, and one of my old Sprint ones with a little keyboard and all that.
0: You it's had cool.
2: Sprint? Wow. I had Sprint.
0: Mr. Big Executive, you didn't have... Verizon all of these years. Yeah, well, yeah,
2: I, I had one of those phones like they had in the movie Wall Street where it's about <laughs> this shoebox box that you put to your head, you know. But, but you, know, you know, if you're taking medication from those days, then the outcomes are going to be Based on you know the science and the stuff that was back then.
0: Have you heard of this drug Zembify or Hizentra? No, nah, I haven't them?
2: heard from it. But you know, they what they do is they push you down the chain mm-hmm. to get you to oh. take a generic or something like that. There's nothing wrong with generics in certain instances, right. but in many many diseases, there's something better. Yeah. And these drugs, they get approved because they're supposedly better than the one, their predecessor. Mm-hmm. So if you go four or five generations down, you're not going to get the effective cures
3: mm-hmm.
2: that you're, you're supposed to be getting. Well, this is
3: not a cure. This is just to prevent <sighs> him from- Treatment from getting worse,
0: I suppose. From right. from getting worse and, okay. in, and yeah. him you know, the, declining. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, for him not to be able to use his hands, you know, that's it. It's, you, he's done. He's yeah. done. And I, I, shame on you, shame on you, government. Anyway.
2: That's so show. Shame, on <laughs> shame on you. Shame on
0: you. Shame, shame. shame on you, Medicaid. People who really need these services are not getting uh, coverage. And it's just deplorable, just deplorable. I and I think they really need to look internally and, and, and fix this because people are, People are spending a lot of money, like people who've been, if you've been working for a long time, you've been paying into the system a very long time. And then to have the system turn around and say to you, well, we're not going to pay for this and we're not going to pay for that. That's unconscionable. Anyway, just um, shame on you. So on to the, this week's topic, managing cultural differences in healthcare. Culture is a complex concept It includes people's beliefs, values, behaviors, and ways of understanding their world. In medicine, managing cultural differences, including customs, is essential to providing high-quality health care. One challenge is that patients may not realize they have customs that could jeopardize their wellness. Culture is largely invisible to people who share it. But to outsiders, the customs and ways of life of different cultures are often obvious and sometimes strange. So the writer gives a few examples from his own experience. I'm in Japan for a conference and I arrive at the house of my host. I knock on the door and they open it, greet me with short bows and smiles, and invite me into the entry area. We stand and exchange pleasantries for quite a while. Eventually, it seems to me we should be making our way into the living room, but for some reason we aren't. I notice people glance at my feet occasionally and look uncomfortable. Ah. It dawns on me that I have my shoes on and everyone else is wearing indoor slippers. How strange to them that I would walk off the street into a house without removing my dirty-soled shoes. <laughs> wow! Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I remember I, I spent time in Germany and um, I went to visit someone at their home, but. And he was originally from Japan. He wasn't Japanese, but he um, he's lived in Japan for many, many years and Mm -hmm. I entered his home. And now I'll tell you at home, I take my shoes off. I don't-
3: We do that at our house too. We lose our shoes right away.
0: Yes. But I'll tell you about my cultural insensitivity. I assumed because that he was European that he wouldn't care whether I had my shoes on or not. Uh, so I proceed to to walk in, and I didn't ask because I always keep a pair of um, like little socks in my handbag just in case you know yeah. I didn't take my shoes off. But it didn't occur to me that this European man would would uh, care whether I took my shoes off or not. So we were standing at the door, and I'm like, what? And he's like, aren't you going to remove your shoes? And I'm like, oh, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then he starts, he starts telling me, he's like, why is it that Americans never want to take their dirty shoes off? It's so filthy to walk around your house. And I'm like, I know what you mean. But that was my bit of cultural insensitivity. I
3: I wouldn't have expected it because, you know, my European relatives, I'm not sure they take their, I don't know what they do now. I mean, everybody's more. Right. I assume because he's
0: European that he wouldn't care whether I took it. Right. Right. That was was interesting. Hmm. But what is cultural awareness? Cultural awareness is the ability to perceive our own cultural beliefs, values, and customs, and to understand how they shape our decisions and behavior. Cultural awareness requires us to step back and look at ourselves as through a stranger's eyes and to open our minds to different ways of doing things. Margaret Mead described it best when she explained the core value of anthropology to make the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Cultural awareness on the part of both practitioner and patient is key to identifying cultural barriers to medical care. Culture influences patients' response to illness and treatment. In our multicultural society, different customs can lead to confusion and misunderstanding, which erode trust and patient adherence. Here are three examples that show how deeply culture impacts medical care. First one, a patient from Morocco had to be hospitalized for pneumonia. When a doctor arrived at the unit, several nurses, nursing assistants, and ward clerk were engaged in a loud argument with a group of Moroccan friends and family members. The staff were trying to escort the visitors out of the patient's room, but in Morocco, they wouldn't consider leaving a sick relative alone in the hospital room. The notion of visiting hours, which is so normal for us, was completely foreign to them. Here's number two. In New York, Orthodox and Hasidic Jewish traditions helped shape their policies and procedures. The hospital had a Sabbath elevator, so no one had to do the work Uh, on on the holy day. And healthcare professionals and patients were not supposed to make physical contact across gender lines. They had also observed plenty of dietary customs from various cultures, kosher, halal, and vegetarian menus, seaweed soup being served to Korean women after giving birth, and attention paid to the hot and cold properties assigned to various foods in traditional Chinese healthcare. Number three, one of his most memorable patients was an African-American Jehovah's Witness. She was in her late 70s, One of her heart valves wasn't working and she needed major cardiac surgery to to replace it. She also had a bleeding tendency and would require blood transfusion during the operation. However, Jehovah's Witnesses usually declined transfusions of whole blood or blood components, not due to the perceived risk, but based on interpretation of biblical text. She refused to have the surgery. After a lot of introspection and discussion with her family and religious community, It became clear this really was her fully informed wish, so the medical team respected her decision. So here's a cultural awareness checklist. Communication and ongoing education are essential to promoting cultural awareness and providing culturally sensitive care. As you work to develop cultural awareness for yourself and your patients, use this checklist to make sure you're able to understand and negotiate any cultural differences that may directly impact care. One. Establish clear communication. Make sure you know your patient's preferred method of communicating and arrange professional interpretation if necessary. Two, be aware of nonverbal cues without jumping to conclusions. Nonverbal communication conveys a lot of critical information, but it may differ dramatically across cultures. Don't make any assumptions without knowing the person's customs. Three, ask openly about potentially relevant traditions and customs. This includes exploring potential spiritual-slash-religious practices, dietary considerations, and cultural norms that may be particularly important to the the patient's clinical situation. Four, use normalizing statements. A respectful way to ask about sensitive issues like culture or religious customs is first to explain that they are very common, e.g., a lot of my patients have customs or practices that are important for me to know about so I can make sure to give you the best possible care. Five, examine your own biases. We all have unconscious biases and prejudices that impact our relationships with patients. Identifying and understanding these biases helps, them, helps to control them and is essential to achieving cultural awareness. Hmm. I think this all sounds very nice. But I'm not sure how decades of beliefs combined with the stress of daily rounds or back-to-back patients is really going to allow time for this kind of growth. Because this this kind of introspection really requires growth and kind of self-awareness. So I think people can change, but if they don't have to, they won't, particularly if you're not from like a marginalized or socioeconomically disadvantaged um, group or background
3: where there's no like direct incentive. Right,
0: exactly. There's no, there's no direct incentive for you to change your behavior or to feel like, even feel like your behavior requires change. Take the NFL, for example. How long has the Rooney
3: rule been in effect? What's right? the Rooney rule? What's that?
2: Okay, Lewis, uh, if you uh, I'll, so I'll <laughs> uh, The Rooney rule is that um, whenever you have a head coaching vacancy, yes Uh, they uh the team has to interview at least one african-american candidate for that position okay that may sound well in theory but recently uh it's been criticized because it hasn't really led to any change at all and some of the people that have been interviewed and rightfully so um have been interviewed feeling that hey I, I was just interviewed to take a box. Uh, no one took me seriously. Oh. You know, there they wasn't that level of engagement that you would expect from, from an interview. And the answer is, you know.
3: These are wealthy old men and they do what they want to yeah. do. Yeah. So so they're, you know, go, they're going through the motions, but it didn't feel like uh, I was right. ever really a candidate. Right. Exactly. Because people like
0: to work with people Mm -hmm. that they're comfortable with. People like to hire people that they're comfortable with. And so what Mm -hmm. happens is you have a a homogenous culture that Mm -hmm. doesn't change. Yeah. So that's, that's what I'm saying is what's going on with, you know, most of these doctors, a lot of doctors are not from low income backgrounds. Okay. And I think the biggest cultural bias in medicine to me, Mm-hmm. Is the appalling number of physicians of color that graduate each year? Mm-hmm. So blacks represent like 5.7% and Hispanics represent 4.6% of medical school graduates.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you have the numbers of the numbers of students of color admitted to these medical schools. That's an unacceptable number also.
2: Mm-hmm. What's, what's that you-
0: number? Do we know? I don't know that off the top of my head. I could find out. And when they do make it in, many mm-hmm. times they graduate with like so many bills. They just, they they go uh. it to the low paying primary care yeah. jobs where they'd be most needed.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that, you know, I'm, I'm gonna use a real world example that, that kind of uh, would affect me. Um, you know, Hispanics and, and, and people from foreign countries uh, in many instances uh, live in an extended family situation where part of, I, I, let's call it the American culture, for lack of a better term, would be to, hey, you know, if granny's old, put her in a nursing home.
3: Yeah, it's and, more like nuclear and not extended. It's, right. Uh,
2: so if you're, you know, a physician that's advising uh, a caregiver uh, for that, you may say to that, to that relative who's the caregiver, well, it's time to put blah, blah in a nursing home. To some to some folks, you might as well have said it's time to take them and throw them off a cliff at the Grand Canyon.
3: Wow. You know,
2: completely culturally unacceptable. Now, we saw some of that uh, during COVID when a lot of the elderly, especially in Italy and in Spain, they had tremendous death rates in COVID. Why? Because you had multi-generational families.
3: In one household, yeah. One
2: household. You also saw that in the United States and that's why Hispanics were much more prone to have people dying of COVID within one household because everybody got it in the same household. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you saw the nursing home stuff here, which you know theoretically those people were safe, but we found out in New York that they weren't safe. Right. Um, but let's bring it back to the topic. If you're a physician, You have to somehow probe to see what is cultural. If you're advising a family, for example, how to care with an Alzheimer's patient, you have to probe with that family when you're going over alternatives as to what their preferences are, because what's going to happen is you might wind up with a very offended patient. You may have a total disconnect with your patient where they just walk out and say, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and it's much like it's a religious practice. There's a lot of cultural practices in play here, yes. uh, that doctors, you know, need to be mindful of and you can't turn them, you know, you, well, you can't, you know, you, you got to tell your patient the truth, but you can't afford to have your patient turned off completely.
0: By the way, so that number is 11.3%. Um, for Black students and twelve point seven percent for Latin students. Okay. And okay. for for American Indian Alaskan natives, that is eight point five percent. So yeah, not huge numbers. Cool. Right. Exactly.
2: <sighs> but what happens? I mean, you know, you get eleven percent in the school, and then all of a sudden, it's only five percent of that. So something happens between here and there. And I think that here and there is an economic thing. I think people start looking yes. at, oh my God, I've just racked up $200,000 of student loans. I can't afford
3: anything. to do this anymore. I can't afford Or something's it. happening in right. my family, some life events. I've got to- right. And I have a responsibility and I, my money is going to be affected. Yes. Exactly.
0: And so what happens mm-hmm. is you don't have diversity um, in, in, look,
1: BetMGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CHAMPION200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game. And-
3: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with BetMGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use code CHAMPION200 to win $200 when you bet $10 on an MLB game, and either team hits a home run. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks, Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. I,
0: adults, you know, I, I, I don't want to be grim here, but at the end of the day, you know, most adults are not terribly self-aware. So to say like, well, you know, ask yourself, what can I do? Can I do more? These people are doing rounds. These people are seeing back-to-back patients. These people, mm-hmm. one time I went to see um, my doctor and I couldn't help but notice that his shirt was stained and it was not tucked in properly. And I knew that he was having quite a day. Right. <laughs> he was late and you know, he was profusely apologetic. <laughs> he but was I harried. He was harried. Who has time for that kind of self-awareness on a on a on a regular any given regular day, you know, when you're harried and you're seeing back-to-back patients, and I'm not letting them off the hook and saying it's impossible. I'm just I just I'm, I'm not sure how realistic that is.
2: Yeah, and and also look, we we see you know when we start looking at the numbers, we see that there's an 11 percent of people that come in and they're accepted into medical school. Then we see that. There's only half of those people wind up graduating. Okay, so right there we we got to realize that there's a problem. I think much like the Rooney Rule, we're we're looking at and saying, "Hey, we interviewed them, and uh, what happens?" Up. Up. They're yeah. saying, "Hey, we let them into school. We we met our quota." Right. You know, but what is it? And I'm not talking about just one race or another. I'm talking about. You know, there, I think there's some economic disparities here. Right. And because this what, happens
0: to Appalachian right. applicants as well.
2: What has to happen in order for that income. to get that mm-hmm. person to finish, to get to the finish line? Yeah. You know, it's not only to have them run the race, there has to be accommodations also made to help that person finish. Yes. Because there are disparities that that person is facing. Yes. And, you know, whether it's a, you know, in in Europe, they pay you a salary while you go to college. Now, I, I get it that they have a completely different economic system. Don't get
3: me started on that. We, oh, we, boy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, sometimes where do those dollars come from?
3: Student loan debt. What's that? in yeah.
2: Europe? Yeah. But it's not a bad idea. And some of these schools have tremendous endowments. And maybe that's a really great place to start using these endowments uh, for helping people But you graduate. made a point,
0: Lou. You made a mm-hmm. point when we were talking about this earlier in terms of the hiring of mm-hmm. the administrators who hire the people and then mm-hmm. maybe that, do you remember what you were saying? Well, you were yeah, saying that. What
2: happens is you you didn't get a lot of, there was very little change in number one jobs because of this affirmative action initiative, going back to the, the Rooney rule. rule. Yes. Uh, but, there was a tremendous amount of number twos hired that were minority people that were never hired. Um, and now, you know, there was a lot of uh, African-American coaches or Hispanic uh, coaches that got a chance to be an assistant coach because they did impress the powers that be at the interview stage. And, you know, maybe, you know.
3: was a foot in the door of sorts. Right. It got a
2: foot in the door. So now we're seeing the Rooney rule 10 years later. And did it cause the affirmative action needed for the number one jobs? No. 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 But for the number two jobs, yes it did. Now, how how do we get those people to move up from the number two slots to those number one slots? And that's where we are right now. uh, In terms of- That
3: we're just being in the the system, being with the company and being, you know, having experience, they might get moved up.
2: Right. Right. So we've institutionalized, you know, Uh, we we have let people get the foot in the door, but it has to be more than just getting their foot in the door. Um, There has to be something beyond that. And that's what we're seeing in the medical schools. We've let the people get their feet in the door. We, okay, we've ticked that box. Let's check that. What we haven't yet accomplished is Helping but that these person these, to be successful. But these are these to
0: the, the, the population. Would you say mm-hmm. that those numbers are
3: uh, reflective of the U.S. population? Yeah. Does it reflect? Like, I don't even know what the numbers are for. The, well, the admissions the, the admissions
2: stuff is more reflective. What is not reflective of the U.S. population is the people the um the the completion rate.
3: Oh, the graduating.
2: Right. The graduating rate. So, you know, inputting, yes. And I can tell you right now, like in the NFL, everybody's everybody's interviewing. Every job requires an African-American to be interviewed. Are African-Americans being interviewed? Absolutely. Are they becoming successful at the end of that process? Absolutely not.
0: But also seeing them sometimes do their job mm-hmm. also helps as well and that's where you get in so you were talking mm-hmm. about you know impressing them in the interview i think it's not just that i think it's also seeing them perform these jobs and right basically um destroying the the, the stereotype that they're not capable of doing these jobs right if that's
3: even what they're thinking i don't
0: know what well,
3: i i know. bet it just it just opens up a possibility that it there, it never entered their minds before. So that, don't it's, you think that it's, just-
0: it's the contact, it's having the contact. Right.
3: Suddenly like, you're not blind to people right, of color. Right, because, because
0: now you know this person, you've seen them right. in action, you see what they can do, you've seen others like them do it. And it's like, well, eh, that's not really true. They actually can do these jobs. And so that barrier has been chipped away, right? And so I think, getting back to your medical schools, that there needs to be some awareness that there is some. That there needs to be some sort of support mechanism to make sure that. Look, when I was in when I was in school, um, you know, I had a, a guidance counselor, and I would talk about all kinds of crazy. Not not a guidance counselor. Sorry, that's high school. I would uh, my, a student advisor. And I had to see my advisor every week because it was, it was a culture shock for me. And I, you know, don't know what I would have done without him because I, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't understand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he helped me see it to the end. But part of the reason that happened is because there were people of color in that Mm -hmm. department who looked at me and said, she needs support. I'm going to put her with the right person right. that's going to support ah, her someone who knew what they were looking at. They knew how to right, help. Right. Exactly. Right. Okay. You know, because it wasn't just enough that I was smart and I was there. It's like, how do we make sure that this person, how do we hold this person up to make sure she succeeds because she's not of this, mm-hmm. this world. I'm, you know, in my family, our first generation, um, college grad, Wow. You know, And to make sure that I succeeded and saw it through to the end, and that's what I see is not happening. In the there's not enough role
2: models that can say, "Hey, this is how I did it. This is these are the tricks that I've. These are the let me let me give you a couple of cues and yeah, you know, it it will get better, and I think eventually we're going to get there. It's just that we all want eventually to be now. Uh, I think it's it's going way too slow, and uh, and you know we we need the change to happen now not two decades from now. so
0: you know it's one thing to sort of and i don't want to say ram down people's throats but to kind of you know ram down people's throats well you need to be more aware and you need to be aware of your unconscious bias and you know for some people that 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 triggers them like you know they get on they get defensive because it's like well there's nothing wrong with me what are you talking about i love all people I'll never forget that unfortunate uh, podcast, uh, the, the, was it the Journal of American uh, Medical Association, where they came out and mm-hmm. said, there's no such thing as a racist doctor. And then they had to pull that because oh, <laughs> everyone was like, what?
3: wow. <laughs>
2: the person lost their job whose
0: idea was that i mean that's a no-brainer that was his and his alone and he is now gone as a result of that so far but um in any event speaking of um, medical when we come back um we're gonna have a listen to dr jessica shepherd talk about cultural sensitivity in women's health
3: all right
2: great
0: Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, editor in chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica Shepard, a board certified OBGYN and Organon health partner, as well as the founder and CEO of Sanctum Med and Wellness, a wellness concierge practice. She's here today to talk about cultural sensitivity in women's health care. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Shepard. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get started. So, what exactly is cultural sensitivity? And what does that look like in a healthcare practice setting?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Cultural sensitivity really is a very broad uh, topic when we think of other cultures and what are things that are sensitive to them in the fact of possibly maybe being offensive, but also being sensitive to the things that create a positive atmosphere uh, because time has been taken to understand other people's uh, backgrounds, um, how they um, process information and how they communicate. Can you give an example? An example of cultural sensitivity could definitely come from, uh, from a healthcare provider standpoint when you see a patient that may uh, l- look different than you or come from a, a community that you may not be familiar with is taking the time to ask uh, in communication uh, what things um, they are open to, what things are uh, m- more relevant to them in a situation of speaking about a healthcare uh, disease state, and then also taking the time to practice active listening. So taking cues, uh, whether that's with body language, with eye contact, and these again are all different ways in building um, cultural sensitivity with interactions that you have with your patients. So how
0: has this approach evolved over recent years? And what was the inflection point for more broadly recognizing the need for it in your view?
4: I think that you know over the years, you know, I can think of even when I was training, um, there wasn't much attention paid to it from an institution standpoint. So now you'll see that a lot of hospitals will have uh, cultural um, sensitivity training for for all employees, no matter what level. Uh, so from the C suite down to uh, people who work in ancillary staff spacing, um, you'll see that that is a good way for people to take the time to at least sit and recognize. Um, Internally, ways that they can improve uh, their communication. Um, And I think that uh, this is probably an inflection point. Most recently, I would say, is when we still see maternal mortality rates that are actually still staggering uh, from a statistic standpoint. Because one, we have, should we do have the best healthcare in the world, but yet we're still seeing. Uh, the fact that the U.S. has the highest mortality rate among developed countries. And so when you take a, a statistic like that and have 700 women who die each year in the U.S. as a result of uh, during pregnancy or postpartum or from delivery complications, we, in and, and one specific uh, category of women, when we think of Black women, that is staggering. And that's something that needs to be uh, discussed.
0: So I had a thought. I'm thinking of the average clinician's day where they're seeing multiple patients, Mm -hmm. right? Because, for example, insurance has made it difficult for you to manage the amount of patients and, Mm -hmm. you know, a fair wage. And I've seen a lot of doctors, for example, just kind of harried, rushed, How does that how do you how do you make time then for to be culturally sensitive when you're under pressure.
4: Yeah, I think that there are multiple levels to that Um, one that you brought up uh, significantly from the insurance standpoint or from hospital uh, administration standpoint is the stress that's put on the providers to uh, give really good healthcare in a short amount of time with a lot of patients. So that model in general is not something that to me is sustainable of positive health outcomes. And so I think it requires from a very top level from insurance companies and them taking ownership in how to let providers give the care that they can in an appropriate amount of time where then that will change the outcome of, of what we see in healthcare? And so I think that providers ultimately really do care for their patients and want to give them the best health care. They're not just put in situations that allow them to do that in the best way possible. And so, you know, from being from a provider standpoint, I too have seen, you know, the inability to really take time to communicate with my patients, even taking out race is just the amount of patients that we have to see. And so, you know, that really, you know, just calling it to, to what it is, I think that there needs to be some responsibility, um, from the structures that put these templates into place.
0: Okay. So let's talk about stigma. How can stigma impact health outcomes?
4: Yeah. Stigma can, uh, impact health outcomes because again, stigma is, what we would see with how that can form some implicit bias. And so all of us have forms of implicit bias, um, but it really is taking the implicit bias and deciding what do we do with that. Um, And then from a stigma standpoint, the stigma uh, gives us the implicit bias on what we assume that's going on with a patient, uh, how we choose to communicate with that patient, And so that then becomes a significant contributor to health inequities and the social determinant of health.
0: In your experience, have you found that the need for cultural sensitivity is greater among physicians, or is it equally spread around amongst MPs and PAs as well?
4: I think that it really uh, is something that is not just for physicians. I think this can even come in... Office setting of people who receive patients, you know, as far as like their interaction uh, from the time that they have their intake at the front desk to um, providers to nursing. Um, I think it's what we call the Swiss cheese effect. You may have your healthcare providers have all the cultural sensitivity skills and have, if we were to have a utopia of no implicit bias, then you still have moments of. Uh, patients having some interaction with healthcare. And if that need is not met there, then you still do have uh, a a point at which a patient has a bad interaction. Um, And so it really needs to be something that's addressed on a wide scale level.
0: So one popular um, implicit bias that I uh, have heard about is the idea that people of color are sort of impervious to pain. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how subconscious or how prevalent that, that idea is among providers. In terms that, of-
4: yeah, that is a great question. Um, I was unaware of that until it was brought to my attention. Um, but after seeing the research behind it, Again, because that's something that never was apparent to me, because that didn't make sense to me. So I never really thought of it in that light. But now I can see if it's something that, one, historically has been taught to some degree, then yes, there is an issue with that, because then that then goes to a level of how that's taught from even med school, right? And so from training, and so these are kind of like the, I guess you could say a microaggression that can be taught throughout training into residency, and then that becomes, a, you know, a, a part of someone's idea of how pain is uh, perceived or tolerated by a certain group. And so I think there, I always feel that the best way to address an, an issue is really go to the fundamentals and the foundation of where that started. And so if we are seeing it in literature and somehow it's being, for lack of a better term, taught, then that's where we need to unravel. uh, Because if we do it to the level of fast forward when people are already well in their career, it's much harder to actually unravel at that point. So we do need to take the steps in when people are training, how that can be something that is completely not part of how someone perceives a group and how they perceive and tolerate pain yeah i think we need to actually do a better job at pain perception in general across the board um because we can even see that in the opioid um epidemic is because there was no matter what level of pain you have there's something to block the pain and so if you look from an eastern philosophy of pain not all pain is bad right it's our body's way of a response and telling us something's going on what we have done a disservice in is helping people understand pain, pain levels, and how to deal with pain without necessarily having to take pain medication. So clearly we have an issue with pain itself. So how do we address that as well?
0: So what women's health conditions are you seeing go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed as a result of disparities? And and how can HCPs help to bridge this gap?
4: I think that there are multiple levels of conditions and diseases that are missed. Um, Now, that can be for for various reasons, Um, and so it's hard for me to just say that it's just related to implicit bias or race. I think that, one, healthcare professionals don't know everything. Um, I think that also there are many opportunities in where we can allow for a patient to be maybe referred to someone who might have a better handle on it or uh, put different lens on it. Um, but when we think about research specifically for a Black community, there are uh, instances, so it's maternal mortality, we describe that, and also things such as fibroids, bleeding, um, endometriosis, was, which is a pelvic pain uh, condition. And so there are many times, again, going to the pain and, I guess, severity of the nature of the issue. So, for example, from a bleeding standpoint, that... Uh, patients are somehow dismissed um, and not heard uh, for what they're experiencing. So that's how things are are missed, or I think being able to truly communicate with the patient, one, time given to patients based on what type of insurance they might have or, or access to care. So there's multiple levels of it. It's not just one thing, but what we do see in research are clearly there is a correlation between race Disparities and then missed um, disease condition states, and then leading to poor health outcomes.
0: Do you think more healthcare professionals of color from different backgrounds would help women of color feel more heard about their cultural concerns?
4: Yeah, I think uh, even outside of just um, African American communities and having Black physicians, we've seen that uh, across all minorities, is that when people have the chance to see someone who looks like them, um, then there's definitely more of a connection, a link, uh, and, a, and a trust, I guess you could say, in being able to understand uh, your patient a little bit more, being able, for the from the patient's perspective, to be able to feel in a safe space so that they can relay their their woes or their issues that they may have because there's comfort. Um, and even if you were to bring it to a gender level, if we think of OBGYNs in general, you know, historically it was more males, right? And now you'll find that because there are more female OBGYNs, that women actually feel more uh freedom, if that if that's the correct word, to disclose some of their their issues, because maybe before they really did feel very uncomfortable explaining that to a male. So I think you can see that across anything, whether that's race, gender, um, or, or even if you were to bring that to the QT community, that if they, we've even seen that, that if they had someone who's more understanding of the connection or their experiences, they're more likely to share.
0: So... What role can a woman's background or culture play in her access to care, health education, and patient goals?
4: I think what we have seen, um, because there was a clear distinction in access to care historically for the Black community, that there wasn't a lot of awareness and education that was brought to these communities. And so through storytelling and experiences, what they shared with their future generations, somehow there was a missing link in the education or the foundational issue of of what the issue was in general. So whether it was heart disease, diabetes, um, that was passed down in a way that there was lack of education. So now what we're seeing is now a generation that does have more access than before is now bringing them up to speed on the education and awareness that comes with certain disease and conditions in order for them to make the right decisions for their care and take the right steps.
0: What improvements have you seen in women's healthcare experience resulting from HCP's practicing cultural sensitivity? And what, what can women do to better help communicate with their providers? How can they push back or lend I think
4: I think advocacy and awareness, so uh, advocacy is always a, a great place to start because people then feel uh, that they have, one, the education to speak to uh, the condition, and also self-awareness of what they feel really that they're experiencing, and then taking the time to, to learn how to communicate that, um, and then through that, you, you'll find that through positive communication and from Healthcare providers having less uh, implicit bias, that you build more of a trust and support within the communication, therefore leading to more positive outcomes.
0: Well, what would that look like for the patient, for example? So I go to, I'm a Black woman, mm-hmm. pregnant. This is my first pregnancy. I go to a white male, let's say, for example, mm-hmm. um, OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say, well, you know, I've been feeling pain in my sides, the sides of my tummy and mm-hmm. so, oh, it's probably just anxiety or something like that well what does that look like so what, what do i do and, and that's
4: a, an opportunity for a patient to say um i i hear what you're saying however i do feel that that is not the cause of this what are some other things that could cause this pain so now you're putting it back into the provider's hand to give more answers And then I also say for patients who may feel that, you know, the communication between them and a provider is not adequate uh, or what they're looking for, that they do have the opportunity to to seek advice from another healthcare professional, whether that's in the form of a consult, uh, switching providers, but that can be done as well.
0: Do you think that cultural sensitivity training should be taught in medical school or offered as a CME? Or do you think that training- these would be more beneficial.
4: I think that cultural sensitivity, uh, from what I know of the curriculum, is a part of the curriculum. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a full course. So I think that there probably should be more time and depth devoted to uh, that topic. I know it is there. I do think it needs to be a little bit more uh, advanced as far as exactly how that can play out, the content, and also the amount of time that's spent with it.
0: steps could hcps on their own take to facilitate open conversations and help reduce medical bias
4: i think that can come in the form of um individual time spent with awareness uh challenging themselves when they have interactions with people from other uh, cultures or walks of life to continually ask themselves have i done everything that i can to break any barriers and then also uh, doing the work to talk to their peers who are, are from a different race or community um, of people to ask them to be transparent in asking them what are some things that i could be missing and uh, how do i do better at accomplishing abc
0: i'm just wondering because if i'm a provider let's say and mm-hmm. i don't think i have an issue i i I live in a big city, I'm an urban, I see all kinds of patients, I don't think I necessarily have a problem, I, I feel that I'm very co- culturally competent, um,
4: mm-hmm.
0: how do I know then that I'm not necessarily,
4: where would that, well, that's, a, that's actually a pretty easy answer, because everyone does, everyone does, doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter how urban your area is, everybody has implicit bias, so it doesn't, that's, that's the baseline, everyone has it, So it's a matter of how much do I have? And am I willing to accept that? That's the individual portion of that. Everybody has cultural sensitivity issues. Everybody has implicit bias. So that's a great place to start because then you can't refute that.
1: Hmm.
0: Well said, well said. Dr. Jessica Shepard, thank you so much for enlightening and elucidating us today. I really appreciate your time.
4: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Hello, Discover here.